there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope you're doing well. Hope school, classes, work, all of the above, internships are going smoothly, and I am so thrilled that you are able to join us today. I want to make sure that you've got your caffeinated beverage on hand because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today, Elise Gaston Shand, is someone you are going to, oh my goodness, are you going to love her? You don't even have to love her horses as much as I do to appreciate what a wonderful, incredibly generous person Elise is. She is a former human resources executive who worked for some of the biggest, best-known companies in the U.S., from Starbucks Coffee to Yum! Brands to the United Healthcare Corporation. But she's also currently the host of a wonderful podcast called Because of Horses. And she's going to tell us all about that. But the truth is, it is all about horses, but it's the way that she uses the horse and the passion that her guests feel about horses to really dig into issues that affect all of us in our lives and help us to lead more meaningful lives. So Elise, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am always caffeinated. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. That was really sweet. You are so welcome. So I cannot wait to hear your answer to this question because (laughs) as a brand new podcaster, I would love to hear what the primary functions of your job as the creator and host of Because of Horses are. What do you do day in and day out? Oh my gosh. Well, so the best part of what I do is I write. I I research my guests. I spend probably, oh goodness, four to five hours for every episode. And I do a weekly episode. It comes out on Fridays, just researching my guests. And, you know, sometimes I go down a rabbit hole and I wind up watching a cat video, but I drag myself (laughs) back. I always find interesting things. And, you know, to be able to talk with people in many cases who I've admired since I was a young girl and I was born horse crazy into a family that has no interest in horses whatsoever. So that's a whole nother topic. But the example, the first example that comes to mind was uh, if anybody is a fan of horse racing, Donna Barton Brothers um, was one of the top female jockeys in the U.S. Very, very hard, hard, hard job and industry for women. And she's only about maybe two years old or three years older than I am, I think. We're, we're pretty close. Well, she agreed to be one of my earliest guests on my podcast. And I got to tell you, I was dancing around my living room. <laughs> she's texting me and my phone's going off and I'm looking over at my 16-year-old daughter. I'm going, guess who's texting me? Donna Barton Brothers. That's right. And it was just, it was so funny. And she was very tolerant of me. So it was interesting. But Anyway, I got to interview Donna. And while we were talking, I had done tons and tons of research about her. And I was asking her very detailed questions. And then she, there was this silence. And I thought, oh, boy, what, what's going on? And she goes, I got to tell you, you have really done your homework. Now, Donna 
is in broadcasting now. She works for ESPN. She works for a number of other um, broadcasting companies as well. But ESPN is the big one where most people, including non-horse people, would have seen her. So when you watch a Triple Crown and you see that person out on horseback galloping along beside the winning jockey interviewing them, that probably is Donna because that's her primary job responsibility in, in addition to other things. But that's where non-horse people would be most familiar with her. So for Donna to say something like that was just, just wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Now that's, yeah. And that's the positive side of what I do every day. The stuff that I'm not so keen on, although it's really important, is the social media side. And so it's really important because, and the positive side is engaging with listeners, sharing horse videos and pictures and conversations and and more and more they'll message me and so we'll have these offline conversations. All of that's wonderful. But it is so time consuming that I feel like I could do that all day long and lose sight of producing the podcast and doing the stuff I need to do to produce the podcast and and, and then just the day-to-day activities. You know, an an advantage of doing a podcast is I work out of my house and my daughter is here in the summer and I'd like to be able to spend some time with her too. But oops, I've now been on Facebook or Instagram for two and a half hours. Where did the time go? You know? Yeah, I can, I can totally relate. Although frankly speaking, I haven't put anywhere near the time that I need to be into building up social media because so much of my time is going into the editing and the show notes and the guest booking and the research and all of that. Although I'm not putting four or five hours into the research for for my guests. So kudos to you for sure. Elise, what was it about a podcast and interviewing people in the horse world that you decided this is the moment in my professional life to try this? There there were so many factors over such a long period of time that, you know, the, the benefit of hindsight is you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the path right there. I see it. But over the, the years in between, it just you don't see it at all. You're not flailing, but you're wandering, I guess is a better a better word. But the primary factors that led to the podcast. So my first career was as a journalist. I reported on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. It was very dry reporting, but man, I was writing and I was getting paid for it. So it was, you know, wonderful. Did some other things as well. Then I got into human resources, did pretty well in HR, became an executive and, you know, worked for some some great companies and had the the terrific benefit of being able to do a good bit of traveling. And more and more as we were traveling, I was meeting people who had the most fascinating lives, I thought. You know, people who had a passion, something. Maybe it was sailing. Maybe it was kayaking. Maybe it was oceanography, whatever. It was all over the place. But they had figured out, and these were pretty young people, in the 20s, you know, and I'm in my 50s. But these were people who had figured it out to me at an early age that they had this grand passion and whatever they did with their lives in some way, it had to incorporate that passion. And there were there were so many different ways that they did that. But that was the core of it. That was that was central to this thought that just kept churning in my head. Crazy about horses from day one. So 
we get to 2016, 2017, my daughter went through some really scary health stuff. Thankfully, we got all of that worked out. We just got that worked out. And I uh, went back into the office after an extended leave and I got laid off. And this was after oh my goodness, is it possible? Almost 30 years in human resources. And the company was very kind. So no complaints about the company, but it's another piece of the puzzle. Okay, now I'm laid off. I got to figure out the next step. And two days later, my dad passed away. And dad was someone who always did what he loved. And and he loved everything that he did too. He was just like that. But he was an NBC News correspondent to the White House. He was a state representative in Austin, Texas. He uh, was a painter. He painted and did exhibitions. I mean, this guy could do anything. But we lost him. And I was now trying to figure out, okay, my daughter's okay. My dad's gone. I'm unemployed. <laughs> This maybe is a really good time for me to think about what I love and what my grand passion is and how to turn that into a career. And in your 50s, you're also thinking at some point in time, I'd like to retire. Well, how can I sustain retirement and still be productive and still be joyful and have something that I feel I'm providing, you know, that I'm doing, I'm active. And again, still around that grand passion. And somehow it just clicked for me. I just discovered a couple of podcasts that I really enjoyed. My brother introduced me to some. My boyfriend introduced me to some others, just anecdotally. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. And I love to research. I love to write. I can write my interviews. I know dozens of horse people, and they're all so kind with their time and so generous with their stories that I think I can do this. And it's a really long-winded answer, and I apologize for that, but it's so central to how I am where I am. The final piece in all of that that really clicked together was back in, oh, let me think, the mid-90s, late-90s. I I had horses. I was showing my horses, and it was a huge show. The photographer who was supposed to have been there fell ill last minute. And another photographer uh, very, very generously stepped in, literally last minute. This is a seven-day horse show. And so his name was Charles Hilton. I'd never met him, but I did meet him at the show and we struck up a conversation. And over the decades, we've we've stayed in touch, maybe once or twice a year. And he has always struck me as someone who understood at a very early age the importance of passion, but had his own career that he had to follow and his own story that some of it was pretty tragic before he landed in photography and, and his, his life really, truly took off the second half of his life. And I talked with him about all these thoughts that were going through my mind. And he said, you got to do this. If you're not going to do it now, when on earth are you going to do it? And I said, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And so that was like the door opened, the heavens sang, and I felt like it all clicked together. Elise, I have to say, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's there's so many things that you can take away from hearing your journey. And one thing that comes through loud and clear is just how happy you sound. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the funny thing, and I probably shouldn't say this, is I, I still do HR consulting part time. So just a handful of hours a week. And I'm blessed to be able to do it. And I'm so grateful for my clients and the opportunity to do this work for the trust that they're expressing in me to do this work. But it's fun, it's intellectually engaging, but it's not joyful. And so when I turn away from, you know, employment law and writing programs and doing all of that, and I switch over to writing an interview, 
it's, you know, <laughs> wee, this is fun. <laughs> that it's just, it's, it's a completely different personal experience. It doesn't feel like work anymore. No, it doesn't. And the funny thing is that I'm putting in hours and hours and hours and wish I had more hours to put in. You know, that's the difference. I totally relate. (laughs) Elise, among the many, many people that you've interviewed so far on Because of Horses, people who are living and realizing their dreams in the horse world, what lessons do you think Java junkies can take away from all of these different folks? You know, there there are two that I hear over and over again that actually were surprising to me. You know, there were thoughts I'd had, but I'd never really intellectualized. And, And one of them is the biggest hurdle first off is making that decision to figure out some way to follow that grand passion or incorporate that grand passion into your life. That's a big one. But that is not the only time you're going to make that decision. You will have to make that decision and recommit to that decision every time you hit a speed bump, every time you you have a night of lost sleep because you're worrying about paying the bills or you're worrying about something that's gone wrong and you're second guessing and wondering, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? You will recommit to that, that initial commitment over and over and over again. And you really have to, even in conversations with people who love you, who want the best for you, maybe saying, are you really sure this is what you want to do and not go get, you know, a Monday through Friday, eight to five job where it's a steady paycheck and you don't have to worry about this stuff. Even then where where they're meaning very well, you got to recommit and stay the course and believe in yourself and what you're trying to do. And that moment of joy that you experience when you do it. The the second piece of that is when I talk with these folks, typically, not always, but typically they are the people like Donna Barton Brothers or Emmy nominated filmmakers or whatever. They're they're at the top of their game. And it's really easy to look at them and to think that their path was different. Their life was somehow different. It was easier for them than it is for most mortals. You know, maybe they're from a wealthy family and their parents gave them a great, you know, financial start. Or maybe they already started in that industry. So they had the contacts and they had the network or or whatever. There's some element that's easier for them and for anybody else. And that just isn't the case. With, with very rare exception, you know, I, I can think of, okay, I've done, well, we've aired 46 episodes. I've done more than that because you always have some in the bank, but I can only think of two people who started out with a head start and everybody else that I've interviewed has, has had to start from nothing from an experience perspective or contact or network or financial, you know, whatever. And so looking at those folks, not as, oh, they did it, but I couldn't look at those folks and understand that they did it. Therefore, I can, too. That's that's the differential. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. And I also think and I can say this at this stage, which is the very beginning. I am having so much fun. Right. It is (laughs) so fulfilling. I get so much joy from speaking to amazing people like you that, holy cow, I feel so blessed to be able to do this and hope that I can continue to be able to do this. So I totally hear what you're saying and relate to it. Elise, I want to flash back to your time at 
Randall-Macon Women's College in Lynchburg when you were an undergrad and you got your BA in sociology and communications with a minor in journalism. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? And what was your first job out of school? And do you remember how you got it? (laughs) Gosh, yeah. So they've actually, uh, not too long ago, changed the name. It used to be Randolph-Macon Women's College and they went co-ed, oh, I don't know, a handful of years ago. So it's now Randolph College. And it's in Lynchburg, Virginia. But yeah, so when I went to school, I I loved to write. I love the idea of journalism. And I I actually wanted Jane Polly's job back then. She was very late 70s, early 80s when I was in high school. And she was an incredibly successful broadcast journalist. She wound up going on the Today Show. And I just I just loved what she was doing. And I loved the way that she did it. And so I thought, yep, I want Jane Polly's job. So I went to I went to school. I've always been fascinated by social psychology, sociology, anthropology, cultural you know, aspects in addition to the, the writing. And so the major seemed like an easy thing. Macon didn't offer journalism on campus. And so it's part of their degree program. So I actually spent my junior year at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, studying journalism. And I'm so glad that I did because I had figured, you know, in front of the camera work was really what I wanted to do. That was where it all was. But when I went to WNL, I had the opportunity to work on the production side also. And I found that I really loved it. And I thrived on all of the mechanics of it and putting it all together and coming up with this final, hopefully polished <laughs> product at, at the end of it. Through WNL, I was able to intern at the Smithsonian. I had four internships when I was in college, and it was great. But in doing all of that, I was I was refining and refining and refining what I wanted to do, and that was print journalism. That was that was my primary focus at that point. Now. Getting into newspapers today, I have no idea what it's like. I imagine it's impossible because there aren't that many newspapers left. But back then, it was incredibly competitive. And there were a lot of newspapers because new- newspapers were the way you got news back then. There was no CNN. There was nothing. It was it was newspapers. And you know, here I am, this squeaky, fresh kid out of college. And yeah, I'd had some really cool internships. But what could you really do? I needed clips. I needed newspaper clippings where I'd actually been published and was producing material on a, on a daily basis in order to get a job with a newspaper. So I still had to eat. <laughs> so my first job, I worked for American Airlines as a flight attendant. And I got, I was based in Chicago. I'd never been in Chicago in my entire life and loved it. Absolutely loved it. I roomed with a couple of, of other brand new flight attendants and um, I loved Chicago. I did not love being a flight attendant. In fact, I really hated being a flight attendant. I do not have the personality for it. I've got Flight attendants in my family, love them. They've been doing it their entire lives. They're what they call goldies now because they've been around so long. But yeah, it was not for me. And so I lasted maybe 10 months. But I got my clips and we had a really bad landing in Raleigh-Durham. And I walked off the plane and called my manager and said, I'm done. I quit. I want to go home. <laughs> and so they, they flew me home. It was very nice. And then I packed up Chicago and I moved. But I got that first job on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, actually working for a trade association for the electric industry. And I wrote for the Washington Letter. And so I was on the Hill almost every day of the week reporting on Congress, reporting on committees and subcommittees, reporting on the federal regulatory agencies. And so it was really dry writing, technical writing, 
But from a discipline perspective, from expansion of being able to write for all audiences, expertise, learning, and just getting time in a writing role, it was absolutely critical. And there was so much about it that I loved. And, you know, I'd pinch myself every day when I'd walk into subcommittee hearing and not because I like politics, I hate politics, but because I was there for a story and I was getting paid. Somebody was paying me <laughs> to listen and to report and to write, you know, and, and that was just, oh, it was wonderful. At least one of the things that I try to do with all time for coffee guests is to ask them to share a moment, a time in their professional life when they really hit, you've referred to them as a roadblock, whether it's a really tough supervisor, boss, maybe they got fired, were in over their head, were drowning, and how they came out the other side and continued forward in their career. Would you share a moment like that with us? Sure. Gosh, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here and I'm filtering through how many there have been because I think if you work long enough, you're going to come up against stuff like that. And, you know, I have this saying that <laughs> I don't think I've ever verbalized it uh, until this moment, but that is the only way out is through. And so as bad as this particular moment is, what are the options? I mean, you know, I can't sit here and throw a temper tantrum or hissy fit, as my grandmother would say. This isn't fair. I don't like it. Make it stop because it's not going to. It's outside my control. And so the only thing I can do is just shoulder through it and know that there will be a point in time when this is the past. And I will look back on it and I'll go, that sucked. But you know what? That was last week or that was last year or that was 10 years ago. Now, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish because I don't, I don't think that that's very helpful. But there, there have been times when, when I moved from Virginia down to Dallas, my entire family had relocated to the Dallas area while I was in high school, college, after I graduated from college and I was working on the Hill. And my mom and my stepdad were the last ones to move. And my brother, who I'm very, very close to, was here in Dallas with his wife, who I adore. And they were starting to have kids. And I'm suddenly by myself in Virginia. And I was working for a newspaper as an editor. I mean, that was what I had worked for. And I should have been really, really happy. And when I wasn't working for the newspaper, because our hours were like 5 a.m. to like 1 p.m., I'd go home. No, it was awesome because then I'd go home, I'd get a sandwich, and then I'd go out to this horse farm. <laughs> and um, I worked part-time for them. And I worked their young horses. They were thoroughbred in Connemara Farm uh, just outside Winchester, Virginia. And I'd ride for them for four or five hours. And this was my life. I mean, oh my gosh, if you want to talk about let's craft the perfect life, life for Elise, this is it. And so, and I'm looking at my entire family leaving. I had friends in the area because of course I'd lived there for a while, but my family and my brother. And so I made the decision, it was really hard to just relocate to Dallas. So I quit my jobs and I moved down to Dallas without a job. I went into an apartment on my savings. My air conditioner crapped out on me. And I remember getting to Dallas, August 19th, 1990, and it was 110 degrees and I had no air conditioning in my 1980 Pontiac Sunbird, which was falling apart at that point. So, you know, that 
that kind of potentially was rock bottom. But I found a, a number of freelance jobs, one of which actually was at CNN. I was the production desk editor. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome. But also when I moved to Dallas, it was the week after the Times-Herald folded. And so suddenly Dallas went from being a two newspaper town to a one newspaper town. So I was competing with other newspaper editors and reporters on their beat. And so that's huge. It's not just enough to be a good writer and a good reporter. You really need to know the market, the readers, you have to have the contacts among the higher ups, the business leaders or whoever, depending upon what your beat is. And I had none of that, but I could freelance. And so I freelanced for a while. I wound up getting recruited to go into corporate communications and and write for a company. So I was still being paid to write. And and I discovered that where I had had three jobs as a newspaper editor, because I also worked on the weekends on the radio, I only needed one job (laughs) when I worked in the corporate world. And I was able to fix my car and I actually (laughs) got a new car. So, you know, it was It was okay. But in that moment, I had a job as a hostess at Chili's restaurant. And I remember fighting to get a dime increase and and being horrified that I couldn't I couldn't even get a dime 10 cent increase to my paycheck. And I was freelancing. And, you know, it just it, it just felt like a really rough time. But looking back, I can see that there was a path there all along. And the moment I was flailing and terrified and broke. But looking back, I can see there really was a path in front of me. So, so sometimes it's like I was saying before with the guests that I talked to, they'll tell you in the moment I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All I knew is I just had to keep moving. But when I look back, I can see that led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And now here, here's where I am. As you said, the only way out is through. I think that is such a fantastic way of kind of focusing your thoughts and your intentions and your momentum to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And my hope is that the Java Junkie community will be able to really internalize these hard won lessons that incredible people like you, Elise, have experienced and then are generous enough to share with the rest of us. So Elise, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community today. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. And I love the theme of your podcast and wish you absolutely the best. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.